Hello, this is Annette Anurgudi and welcome to the Pint of Science Ireland podcast. We're bringing you extended cuts of the science festival that takes place in pubs across Ireland as part of Pint of Science Ireland. Today, we're focusing on simplifying a big scary concept in science. We interviewed Dr. Mark Mitchinson, who is an assistant professor in Trinity College Dublin, researching quantum physics. Grab a pint, it's starting. And so first of all, we'll start off with your background. Can you tell us a little bit about where you are and how you got there? Yeah, so my current job is I'm a lecturer or assistant professor, as it's called at Trinity. So my job is to do research in quantum physics. That's my specialty. I'm particularly interested in um, how we can use quantum physics to make very precise measurements. But I also do teaching. I do a bit of admin. So I've actually been, I'm obviously not from Ireland, as you can tell from my accent. I'm originally from London. I did my studies of physics as an undergraduate in England, in Leeds, and then I did PhD in London. And then I actually moved to Germany for a couple of years. And I was working as a researcher in different places. I was in Germany, then I moved to Dublin about four years ago, and I was working at Trinity. So I've kind of always been interested in physics. I kind of knew I wanted to be a physicist from a young age. So I basically just, after school, I decided to just go for it. I've been a professional physics nerd ever since, pretty much. So that's great. It seems like you've been able to find a passion and really go for it. And your passion is something that's quite in the popular mainstream now. Science in general can really intimidate people. And I think quantum physics is probably the the king of that intimidation. And so in this podcast, we want to try and get to understand the fundamental concepts in a more basic way. Could you introduce these core concepts for the audience? Yes. So uh, it's true that quantum mechanics has a reputation for being hard to understand. I think it is quite hard to understand, but uh, I'll try and explain the kind of basics in in a simple way. So basically what quantum physics is, uh, it's our most fundamental theory of matter and energy in the universe. And it particularly is important for describing processes that either involve a small amount of energy or happen very quickly. So that means that it definitely is needed when you start describing really small things because they have a small amount of energy. So things like single particles like atoms or electrons, But it also can describe very large things as long as we're talking about very fast phenomena, okay? So the thing about quantum mechanics is it sort of radically departs from the way that we typically think about the world in, I would say, kind of two really important ways. So the first way is the fact that quantum mechanics predicts that when we measure things, we only ever get what are called quantized outcomes. So that means we only ever get outcomes that are kind of like you know, an integer value rather than being some kind of continuous range. For example, if you're measuring the direction of the spin of a particle, like if a particle is kind of rotating and you want to ask, is it rotating this way or that way? If you think about a football, you know, it can rotate almost any way it likes in three dimensions. If you look at how an electron rotates, then you always find it's only ever rotating exactly clockwise in this direction or counterclockwise. And those are the only two outcomes you ever get. You never get anything in between. So the other thing about quantum mechanics that's very weird is that it's inherently kind of uncertain or probabilistic, okay? So it also predicts that when we do these measurements, rather than necessarily always getting the same outcome, we can get random outcomes. So, I mean, the way that I try and think about what quantum physics really tells us is somehow that at the quantum level, there's more information contained in a physical system than can be accessed in any one measurement, okay? So 
in some sense, the theory tells us that an electron can be spinning any direction that it likes. But when you look at it, you only ever find it's, it's up or down. And the way that you can kind of reconcile this with the fact that the electron can move any way that it likes is by also having this random aspect. So the kind of the quantized part and the uncertainty kind of go hand in hand, but they are obviously quite kind of radically different from the way we normally think about the world around us. One of the important things to understand is that there is uncertainty in the way that, you know, normally you can predict an object is going to do one thing. And in here it could be multiple things. And there seems to be a difference between the theory, what you expect in theory, and then what you're observing during measurement. We'll, we'll get more into, into that detail a little bit. I think it's important to bring in the idea that quantum physics can seem detached from everyday life. Could you uh, give us some insight into how quantum physics affects our lives practically in everyday life? Right. Yeah, sure. So actually, there's loads and loads of really important applications of quantum physics. Lots of them we know very well. Our understanding of how to build computers is based on these transistors, which are basically little switches. The only reason that we're able to understand how these work is through our understanding of quantum mechanics. Lasers were also invented because we understood quantum mechanics. Lasers and transistors basically underpin modern information technology, so pretty much the whole modern world. Another thing that's kind of nice, which is closer to my own research, is atomic clocks. So atomic clocks are very, very precise clocks. They measure time and they do so using basically quantum physics, the quantum physics of, of atoms. So the only reason why your phone is so useful for navigating, that works because of atomic clocks on satellites. So I would say that's kind of revolutionary. I mean, 20 years ago, you'd have to look up really carefully where you were going. These days, I, I don't even bother if I'm going to a new place, I just leave the house and then I, afterwards I look at my phone and I'm trusting that Google Maps will tell me where to go. So that's all possible because of um, atomic clocks and, and they rely on quantum physics. Absolutely. And actually, I think these are really good examples of how you don't actually think about how quantum physics fits into these really major parts of our society. Personally, I don't even know the name of the street I live in, you know, absolutely rely on maps yeah. on the phone. So it's definitely a, a wonderful aspect of life. And as you were discussing there the difference between you know certain theories that you might have in quantum physics and then what you measure mm -hmm. can be slightly different. You know, science is is the making of observations and predictions and measurements, and this is true for quantum physics, mm -hmm. although it can seem a little bit less intuitive. Could you talk about the importance or role of measurement in quantum physics? Yeah, sure. Okay, so first of all, um, maybe I should clarify, because I think maybe I, I didn't explain it very well, but like, I mean, there's the theory predicts the outcomes of measurements as well as we could possibly hope. Uh, there's kind of no real, I mean, basic quantum theory is the most successful scientific theory we've ever had across all sciences in terms of how accurately it can, can predict measurement outcomes uh, of experiments. But I, what I was trying to get at is there's a sort of, when you describe the kind of mathematical you know, state of a particle like an electron, there's a, there's a much richer information contained in that than just the two possible measurement outcomes that you would get. That additional rich information actually describes the fact that you could do different kinds of measurements, and those different kinds of measurements all give you different kinds of information. But it's just in any one single measurement, you can only kind of access a small part of that kind of rich information that's, that's kind of contained there, if that makes sense. So, sorry, I don't think I really actually answered your question, right, which is about the role of measurement. No, I think that's a good okay. clarification. Yeah. Right. Picking up on what you said there, you measure one specific thing and you're getting different information than if you were doing a different 
type of measurement. And I think that's an important thing to maybe comment on and further elaborate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's kind of where this sort of uncertainty comes in. So the fact that you only ever get kind of random outcomes, what it means is that in any single experiment, it's very hard to know what will happen, right? It's a random outcome. But if you repeat the experiment many times, then you can kind of build up a pattern. And that's very much predictable. So that's that pattern, that kind of statistical pattern is the thing that quantum mechanics can predict. It can say, okay, uh, you find the electron spinning up with probability, you know, 60%. And that means that 60 out of 100 times when you repeat the experiment, then you'll see uh, the electron spinning up. But in any one experiment that you do, it's basically impossible to, to predict. That means that we have to do a lot more measurements typically in, in, in quantum experiments because you have to build up this probability distribution. Okay, so measurement is very important because it can determine what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. What, as you said, this whole collection of information that exists for um, a particle. Mm-hmm. So in classical physics, it's possible, you know, to make predictions with really great accuracy. And thanks to this, we've achieved things like the moon landing, pretty big uh, physical science feat, I think. And in quantum physics, the predictions, as you've said, it's not that they're not accurate. They just become a little bit less straightforward, especially when you're talking about, okay, if I'm going to measure it this one time, what will I see? So that's why at these scales, as you said, we talk about probability. So can you explain a little bit more the role of probability in quantum physics? Okay, the the role of probability in quantum physics is quite interesting. And it's very different from the role that probability typically plays when we think about, you know, classical physics experiments or even experiments in biology or in kind of other areas. So typically we think about probability as resulting from our kind of ignorance, our kind of clumsiness in some way. As, As human experimenters, we can't see every little thing that's going on. But in principle, if we could look down and see where every little bit of our experiment was moving, where every cell inside our plant was situated, then there wouldn't be a need for describing things in terms of probability. We'd be able to perfectly predict everything, right? That's what classical physics says. The bizarre thing about quantum mechanics is that it says that this probability is not really a result of human kind of ignorance or clumsiness. It's a really fundamental part of nature, that there's no being, there's no kind of superhuman person with with super vision and and extremely precise kind of uh, use of their hands that would ever be able to get past this fundamental randomness. It's just always there and it's part of nature. I mean, can you really say that there will never be a point where you can, as objectively as possible, look at these things in the way that they actually are? Okay, so there's some people, uh, some physicists out there who are really trying to find um, theories that kind of go beyond quantum physics uh, and, and perhaps even trying to find theories that would describe the world in some kind of more deterministic way. It's not completely ruled out by what we know, but we do know, uh, we kind of know from experiments that have been done, including the experiments that actually led to the Nobel Prize this year, that if there is, you know, some fundamental description of nature that doesn't have this randomness, it's super weird. I mean, it's crazy. Everything in the universe is non-locally connected to everything else. There's kind of no notion, potentially no notion of free will. So these are the kind of sacrifices that you would have to make in order to find a theory of reality that actually gets rid of this probabilistic aspect. So most physicists believe that what happens on Earth is not 
fundamentally connected with events happening on the other side of the universe and that you know perhaps there isn't some kind of super being controlling every single aspect of everything that that's ever done with those kind of reasonable assumptions we can kind of safely say that there won't be a description that kind of gets rid of that randomness but i mean it's you know it's science and there's always some uncertainty you never say never but i would say the probability of us finding um such a description is pretty low based right. on current knowledge yeah, and it's interesting that you say this because I can see a lot of parallels with some of the things that I've been studying, which is sustainability and society and the environment. And mm-hmm. it's the same, you know, you're looking at the really small scale stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's also the people who look at the large scale stuff and say there is absolute randomness. We have these little observations that we can make to try and understand patterns and behavior, but it's an utterly complicated system. It's hard to know what you can come up with to completely define these complicated systems Mm. and it seems like in a way this is what we're seeing with quantum physics it's just as complicated as as larger systems but i think that people have this idea because of how science is portrayed that you can always know the full description of something Mm. and maybe we need to challenge that a little bit no absolutely i agree So it seems like a fundamental difficulty with quantum physics is how to measure phenomena that are liable to change as a result measurement. So could you talk a bit about what are the factors that need to be accounted for when measuring? I guess I kind of alluded to this a little bit already, but because of this kind of uncertainty, yeah, you have to do lots and lots of measurements. You can't just get away with doing one or two, you typically have to work with large numbers of kind of repetitions. What I will say, though, is we I wouldn't want to give the impression that this uncertainty means that we can't do real kind of incredible feats of, of accuracy in our measurements. So I mean, actually, using quantum physics, we're able to make probably the most precise and accurate measurements that have ever been achieved. That's kind of because of this additional sort of rich information I would that I kind of alluded to already that's contained within quantum systems. It's just that you have to do lots and lots of measurements to kind of get it out, if that makes sense. You can't just do a one-shot measurement and, and be done. Yeah, I don't know if that kind of answers the question. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, again, you know, looking at the larger systems, one single measurement of any factor does not usually give you a full picture whether we're talking about society or how a species works or anything it's interesting to see that what you're observing in quantum physics is actually what is observed in a lot of other fields of science yeah and so turning more towards your research and the thing that you seem so so passionate about mm-hmm. can you talk to us a bit about what you're working on in relation to temperature and how that looks um, on different scales one kind of big part of my work yeah is about how we can measure temperatures but at really, really kind of small temperature scales. So this is important because in modern experiments where we actually try and see this kind of really kind of interesting quantum phenomena, you might be trying to coax out the quantum nature of your system because you're trying to do something like build a quantum computer, which uses these kind of bizarre quantum uncertainty to actually do very fast computations. So all of these kind of experiments, they typically require very, very low temperatures. And I'm talking about temperatures that are much colder than anything that would exist naturally in the universe. So uh, the kind of temperatures that I'm interested in measuring would be on the order of okay, what we call a nanokelvin, which means a billionth of a degree above absolute zero. So an a- uh, absolute zero is minus 273 um, centigrade. Uh, it's the absolute coldest temperature you can have. 
Uh, and so we're talking about temperatures that are like one billionth of a degree above that, which is millions and millions of times colder than anything in outer space. Those cold temperatures, they only exist on Earth. As far as we know, they don't exist anywhere else. And the reason why we make those temperatures is precisely because we want to see particles behaving in this kind of really quantum way. But of course, you know, a regular thermometer isn't going to work for trying to measure those temperatures. So yeah, I mean, a big part of my research is just trying to devise these kind of different ways uh, of measuring temperature. Typically, we've been kind of focusing on how we can actually use quantum behavior itself as a kind of probe of, of these temperatures. So you can use the kind of quantum properties of a single atom, kind of like a, a tiny little thermometer. And you can use that atom as a thermometer to measure what's going on in its surroundings and get a very precise estimate. But yeah, in terms of what temperature kind of looks like on different scales, these things are kind of hard to visualize. But um, Basically, temperature is always a measure of how fast, you know, how, how, how much energy density you have in a system. So roughly speaking, kind of how much things are sort of jiggling around and moving around. You know, temperature on these kind of scales, you can just think of it as everything being, you know, very, 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 very not energetic, very sluggish indeed, basically. Okay. And so you said you use an atom as a tool, as a thermometer mm -hmm. for measuring temperatures where regular thermometers fail. Mm -hmm. And where is the research at now? Like, is this done or on the process of right. happening? A couple of years ago, it was just a theoretical proposal that we kind of put forward, uh, myself and some other colleagues at Trinity. Actually, in the last year, an experiment was published where they actually did something quite similar to what we proposed. They used it on a slightly different system, but they basically used exactly the idea that we proposed, which is to use this kind of quantum properties of a single atom as a thermometer. So that's quite exciting. It's one of the most kind of motivating things for me is to see that experimentalists actually read my papers and, you know, use the ideas. Because myself, I'm just a theorist, so I just kind of work out ideas. I predict things using computer simulations, but the real hard work gets done by the experimentalist in the labs. So they're the ones that have to kind of really do the hard work and, and actually do the measurements. Okay, great. So what is the next step for your research? Is it more experimentation, more theories? So the thing that I'm most excited about now uh, is actually trying to understand how much energy it costs to do a precise measurement. So I think that's an important question for the development of quantum science in general, because ideally we'd like to find ways of doing these measurements that actually are cheaper. You know, they don't cost as much energy. That will mean that our kind of quantum devices, our quantum computers are not so energy hungry. This is actually something that I'm looking into from my side on the theory side, but I also collaborate with experimentalists in the UK and also in Sweden who are actually trying to build devices to help us basically try and measure the energy cost of a measurement, if that makes sense, and ultimately try and find ways of making them more efficient. Okay, that's great. And I think that's probably a good uh, when you think about how do things become a wider part of society or wider applications, you really have to think about the more economical yeah. aspects of your research. Definitely. So you mentioned earlier the Nobel Prize, which was given this year for quantum entanglement. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about, about the project and also just your general feelings around it? Sure. This is a really interesting one, also from the Irish perspective, because... The person who really deserves the credit for this Nobel Prize was an Irish physicist called John Bell, but he died many years ago now. And that's actually, I mean, the Nobel Prize is never given out posthumously. So it's kind of a bittersweet thing, I suppose, from the Irish perspective, because in a way, Ireland kind of won the Nobel Prize or the, the ideas originated from there. But um, formally speaking, of course, John Bell didn't get the credit. So the idea of entanglement is something that I alluded to before. It's sort of the, the thing that we've measured experimentally that tells us that there's something really fundamentally kind 
kind of different about quantum mechanics. And so what it basically says is that if you have two different particles, two different quantum particles like electrons or, or atoms, they can be correlated with each other in a way that's much stronger than would ever be allowed by classical physics. One way of kind of thinking about um, understanding this is, you know, I kind of alluded before to the fact that you have, in some sense, sort of hidden information within the description of a quantum state. And the fact that you have this kind of hidden information means there's sort of more correlations that you can have. So there's kind of more information that can be shared between these two particles. Now, this turns out to be incredibly useful because it's the basis of all kind of modern efforts to build quantum technologies like completely secure quantum communication, quantum computers. These are all things that are being kind of developed now. And so the Nobel Prize winners, Aspect, Clauser and, and Zeilinger, they all kind of laid the foundation for this by actually demonstrating that John Bell's idea or his prediction was correct. So John Bell basically wrote down a theorem saying that if you do this experiment, you'll get a certain result. Okay, that's predicted by quantum theory. But if I think about the world classically and I say that these particles, you know, they behave randomly just because there's something in there that I don't know, but I'm just an ignorant kind of clumsy human. Then John Bell showed that actually the prediction would be different. Uh, it would be different from the thing that we actually see in the labs, right? So basically this is an experimental proof that randomness in quantum mechanics is really kind of fundamental. It's not just a consequence of ignorance or, or kind of clumsiness of some kind, right? Okay, um, that's, a, that's interesting to know yeah. because I'm, when I first heard about certain theories of quantum physics, I was like, well, is it not just us getting maybe something wrong? Because sometimes that happens in science, you know, you make a weird observation, like that doesn't make sense. And you think maybe the tools are incorrect. Yeah. Shout out to John Bell there. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't, I wasn't aware of that. That's actually pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. But I think, you know, science takes a big team. It's never just one person, but it's good to acknowledge the role of the role of Irish scientists. Well, that's one of the problems with the Nobel Prize, I would say, is that it doesn't acknowledge a big team. It only acknowledges individual people. I mean, if I'm perfectly honest, I think it's completely out of date as a kind of model for recognizing science. So I, I absolutely think, you know, Clauser and, and Aspect and Zeilinger are outstanding scientists who deserve every credit. But the Nobel Prize as a concept is kind of a bit defunct, in my opinion. It okay. probably yeah. needs to be, the whole model should be rethought by the kind of Nobel Committee because these are huge teams of people that contribute to these scientific achievements. It's typically not just one or two lone geniuses. Um, yeah. I think it's a very harmful stereotype to kind of promote the idea of, you know, the lone, typically white male genius uh, just sitting there working in his office. That's not how yeah. science works at all. It's the more traditional view of science, which I think as we're doing more and more science, realize there's a whole team behind mm -hmm. so many things. And actually, that's a very interesting observation, not something that we really think of when it comes to the Nobel Prize. Mm. We usually end on a question about common misconceptions. Mm -hmm. Of course, in quantum physics, there's a lot of common misconceptions. We've touched on a few. Yeah. But maybe can you focus on one major misconception about your field of work that you would like to clarify? Sure. So maybe I'll, I'll talk about entanglement because, well, it's topical and we've just been talking about it. And there's a really major misconception that you see all the time, which is this idea that entanglement is some way of two particles communicating with each other instantaneously, 
right? So communicating with each other faster than the speed of light. And this idea often inspires kind of students and, and people to say, ah, oh, well, then because of entanglement, I can build some, some mechanism to communicate faster than the speed of light, maybe even travel faster than the speed of light. And that's just not the case. Oh, okay? dumb. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's wrong. Um, entanglement is not faster than light communication. Actually, there's no way of using entanglement directly to communicate anything at all. So entanglement is used in communication protocols as a way of encoding information cryptographically. But this kind of link or this correlation between particles that entanglement embodies cannot be used to, to transmit any information at all. And the reason is because of this kind of fundamental randomness, right? So entanglement says that there's a correlation between the outcomes of measurements that you do on these two particles, okay? But it doesn't tell you what the actual outcomes will be. The outcomes are random. But there's no way of, of sending a message because essentially there's no way of predicting what the outcome of your measurement will be. Entanglement just tells you that you get a random outcome and it will be correlated with what, with what happens over there, but it doesn't allow you to actually send a message. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Is there a chance that it could lead to that with better understanding? I don't think so, no. I, I'm skeptical about any kind of mechanism for fast and the light communication or travel because, uh, well, it just leads to all kinds of paradoxes and weird things based on the other bits of physics that we know. There is a, probably a possibility of something um, called a wormhole being used to kind of transmit information or, or matter across very sort of vast distances. At least wormholes don't appear to completely violate all the laws of physics that we know of, but we have absolutely no idea how we could ever make them. So it's completely science fiction at this point, and it has really nothing to do with entanglement as far as I know. Okay, so maybe that's a podcast for another day, wormholes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, I think that's that's all for today. Thank you very much. Is there anywhere, if people want to hear more from you, where they can go on Twitter or LinkedIn, any platforms that you use, if you would like to share? Sure, yeah. So you can find me on Twitter, tweeting about science and politics and nonsense. So yeah, my Twitter is just Mark Mitchison. Uh, that's my handle. Okay, Thanks perfect. Lot. Okay, Mark Mitchison, thank you so much for coming on Pint of Science Ireland podcast. Thanks for having me. That's everything for this episode. We hope that you've enjoyed the episode and are more clear on the theory of quantum physics. In light of the recent Nobel Prize, we would like to dedicate this episode to John Stuart Bell, Irish physicist. If you'd like to find out more about us or Pine of Science Ireland, follow at Pine of Science on Insta and Twitter and find us wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was made with the editing assistance from Daniel Giffney and Peter Lebrocky Cox. Research assistance from Peter Lebrocky Cox, Daniel Giffney, and Molly McQuarrie. Thanks to the co-directors of Pine of Science Ireland 2022, Kevin Mercurio and Ashley Gorman, as well as the SFI. Finally, we would like to thank Dr. Mark Mitchinson for taking the time to be on this episode. Pine of Science Ireland is part of the global initiative Pine of Science, which aims to bring the research to you, the people that fund it. We'll see you next month. This has been Aneta Naguri. Thank you for listening.